Hi, my name is Wasif. I'm the owner and pharmacist of iCare Pharmacy. And welcome to the iCare Podcast, where we talk about all things in regards to health and wellness. On this podcast, we do talk about a lot of topics, and a lot of the topics are kind of more meant as general information. If you do have questions specific to your health, it's always best to consult a health professional, or you can feel free to text me at 780-705-8871. If you do have any questions about the podcast or your health in general, you're always welcome to send me a text at 780-705-8871. And we do have two locations, one on the north side of Edmonton and one on the south side of Edmonton in Windermere. And we deliver free all throughout the city. So if you do need anything, do not hesitate to reach out. And also as well, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please consider subscribing. Thanks and take care and stay safe. Hi, my name is Wasif. I'm the owner and pharmacist of iCare Pharmacy Windermere. And uh, thanks for joining the iCare podcast. Today on this episode, we're going to talk about specifically about the vaccinations. Also as well, we're going to talk to Jan, who is a fifth year resident at the University of Alberta. Who has been working the front lines in regards to the COVID-19 outbreak, and also as well, um, he's also received the first immunization. So we'll kind of get a little bit his experience as well. Thanks for joining us, Jan. Thanks for having me, Austin. Yeah, no worries. And then of course we have my brother here, Atif. And then off uh, off camera, you might have to sit a little bit closer, honey. Ah, uh, sorry. Uh, off camera, we have my wife, Dodo. Hello. Okay. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so Jan, I just wanted to, you know, you know, you know, from all of us say thank you so much for working the front lines. I know that's like, <laughs> that's a stressful situation. So thanks so much for doing your part to kind of keeping us all safe. I really appreciate that. Um, what, uh, in general, what has your experience been on the front lines so far? Uh, you know, thanks for having me, Wasif. I mean, I think it's, you know, great to have, you know, these kind of platforms to, to talk about what's going on. You know, first I'll mention, you know, I, I am kind of more sheltered on the surgical side of things in the hospital. So there are a lot more physicians, specifically in emergency, emergency department, intensive care, you know, nurses and respiratory therapists who are obviously, you know, more of a front line than, than we are. Um, but, you know, in terms of my experience so far, I can tell you that, you know, I think the overall overall the the feeling in the hospital is that this pandemic has really overwhelmed our healthcare system uh you know both from a perspective of you know people coming in with COVID-19 but what we also got to remember is that sick people that used to come into hospital are still coming in at the same rate so you know we're just at I guess in a subspecialty services just like I'm in we're trying to balance multiple things that new patients coming into the hospital who are sick and then how do we manage our own service, the people that we have to take care of, because they're still coming in at the same rate. Okay. And then, so like you're saying they're, they're coming at the same rate. So I know like they're talking about like in the community, seeing some declines in the numbers, but in, as far as it goes in terms of number of patients that are in emergency rooms and need urgent care, that's about the same. You know, there was a spike, um, closer to kind of December, um, which where we saw more of a, you know, more an admission um, compared to the summer. Um, right now, since the new lockdown uh, measures that were implemented before Christmas, you know, the numbers have gone down. 
And now, the, from, at least from my experience, the numbers are looking much better than they have been over the past month. You know, I don't know what that will mean in the next couple of weeks with now new rules being implemented and, and, the, and the rules being loosened up a little bit. But I can say overall, the trend is that, you know, things have slowed down a little bit in terms of new cases coming in. Nevertheless, you know, we're still seeing, we're a little bit biased in a hospital because we're seeing the sick people and people who haven't left the hospital as a sequelae of COVID. Yeah, and of course, there, there's also concern of the variant you know, now I, I think uh, Dodo, you were saying that there were like 37 yeah. cases of the variant in Alberta. Now? I read, um, like Kenny announced on Friday, uh, Kenny and Hinshaw, uh, Hinshaw. Uh, announced that there was 37 new variants. Some were not travel related. That's yeah. what I read in the news report. Yeah, and the issue with the variant, of course, is it's more contagious. And, and I think the preliminary information on it is that it might be more more dangerous than the uh, than the original. Yes. What are your thoughts on that, Doctor Jan? Or, or Jan? <laughs> you know, I don't think we have enough good good data. I mean, you know, there's various different things being said about the variants. One is, like you mentioned, Wasif, they're saying that you know it's more contagious, it spreads easily because the virus mutated in such a way that it can it can become more contagious. There are some, you know, preliminary literature from Britain that suggests that it's not more, um, you know, you get sick in it to the same degree uh, compared to the original variant. There's obviously now companies such as Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca that are saying that their vaccines are covering for the variants. So, you know, I think a lot of that data on the variants, you know, I guess in a general sense as a medical community, we don't, I don't think there's a unanimous opinion about it yet. I think more of that data will come out um, as you know, kind of the year goes by, and and people are able to you know subtype the variants and look at the genetic makeup of them to say if truly some of those claims are true or not. Um, yeah. I just don't think we have enough information. I think what we know so far about the variants is that there's suggestion that they're more contagious, they spread more rapidly, but whether they cause more severe illness, I don't think we can truly say that yet. Yeah, it's, it's too early at this point, I guess. Um, and then, like, for myself, I have a lot of patients who are in situations where they've had to, uh, um, you know, they had surgeries and those sort of things that they had to postpone. And, of course, you know, on their end, they're disappointed because it kind of, uh, you know, in terms of quality of life, it kind of, uh, they have to go a little bit longer with a, with a lower quality of life. What kind of message would you kind of say to kind of those type of patients? Like obviously, like the the postponements of uh, of these electives are are pro are more than necessary, right? Yeah, and I think you know what what I think the general public has to kind of realize, especially in a publicly funded healthcare system like ours, is that you know COVID has kind of overwhelmed our system, meaning we just have we don't have enough resources or enough beds to be able to accommodate you know influx of patients because of covid and then to be able to accommodate the elective surgeries that we do certainly my message to to, to patients that are waiting for procedures is that you know each subdivision especially within surgery because I, I i mean that's what i can kind of speak about is that every subspecialty or every surgical subspecialty has kind of come together and and then and, and they're doing their best to try to triage the cases. So for example, in urology where I'm in, 
you know, we have multitude of patients coming in both for elective and urgent surgery. More urgent surgeries are surgeries like cancer. So the most common cancers that we treat are kidney, prostate, bladder cancer. Any elective surgeries, for example, are, you know, elective stone surgeries, elective surgeries for urinary incontinence. So what we have done as a specialty or, or our division has done is we started triaging patients. So we look at the wait list, we look at people that can't wait and try to triage those people in sooner that can't wait. And there are efforts that are being made, especially at smaller hospitals like Misericordia Greenhouse to try to accommodate some of the elective volume so that those people that, you know, let's say have less urgent medical issues are still being pushed through. But my message is that, you know, it is a nuisance because you have to wait, uh, you know, you need a hip replacement, you need some sort of an elective surgery. I mean, our healthcare system just got very, very overwhelmed because, you know, I'll give you an example at the Royal Alexander Hospital. For us to be able to function in the operating theater, we need a functional recovery room where patients go after their operation. Now, the recovery room at the Royal Alexander Hospital was converted into an intensive care unit. So that changes the uh, acuity or the complexity of cases that we can do. Yeah. Because we can't send everybody to the recovery room. So for example, there were days where we focused on a lot of day surgeries, like elective stone surgeries, where we can get the cases done and get people home the same day. We sometimes focused on cancer surgeries where patients don't have to stay in hospital for longer than two to three days to minimize, um, you know, minimize them being in hospital or occupying a bed. At the same time, the other challenge we face is, you know, what do we do with the sick people that have cancers that can't wait? Because those people are going to come in and they may have to stay a long time. They may have complications and then they may end up having to have a prolonged hospital stay. Now you have to balance that with all the new cases of COVID coming in and people occupying, you know, hospital beds. And I think, you know, what, what the public needs to be aware is that we don't like countries like the U.S. have a privateer system where some of that can be offloaded. You know, people that can't afford care can go to different places and there's a lot more wiggle room. We don't have that here. We, we, we're in a, we have limited number of beds. We have to be able to balance you know, a lot of things. So it is frustrating. It is, I think what people need to also understand is it is frustrating on behalf of both the surgeons and the patients, but I think all subspecialties within medicine are doing their best to try to triage care accordingly. And you know, people who have urgent problems, you know, they're not being ignored. People are trying yeah. to them in, in a timely fashion. And uh, these are week by week, case by case discussions that are being held. Okay. And then uh, when we talked uh, a little bit last week, you had kind of mentioned about some of the post-op complications with like cancer treatments, as well as like kidney transplants. And you kind of gave some examples. Would you be able to talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely talk about it. I mean, uh, you know, university hospital is a good example. It's in my subspecialty, the university hospitals where we do a lot of our, you know, complex oncology procedures. There's a large volume of kidney transplants being done. So we kind of face a challenge during this time. You know, I can tell you back in February is a good example when, uh, you know, the initial kind of, we had to start, we had to kind of re-strategize the way the service was working. We focused our attention, uh, you know, a lot to taking care of really sick people that, were, that, that had cancers that needed to get done. So essentially what ended up happening is, you know, a lot of our non-urgent things went on hold and we ended up bringing into hospital a lot of sick people. Now, these people, you know, on average stay in a hospital seven to 10 days, if not longer. 
Um, and now you have to balance that, you know, so what happens if a person gets sick, you know, after having an operation, they, they, they sometimes need to require an intensive care treatment. Now, in an intensive care, you have intensive care physicians being overwhelmed with sick people who have COVID, some who don't, who require, you know, a lot of intensive care support. And now you're bringing in sick people to operate on, and then you have to kind of play a bit of game of Tetris almost <laughs> to decide who are we going to get out of ICU, who are we going to transfer there, you know. So there, so, you know, that's 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 been a biggest challenge, I think. Number one. Yeah. The second challenge that we're facing is, you know, the fact that because in Edmonton, for example, a lot of the physicians when they are specialized in a very specific area. They end up taking calls from a lot of peripheral hospitals. So, for example, if somebody needs a urologic procedure done and they're located in Fort McMurray, they need to be transferred over to Edmonton to get their surgery done. So, you also have to deal with bringing in patients from different health regions, um, even though we're under the umbrella of the same health region, but you have to physically relocate people to your hospital. That also increases, you know, transmission risk and. Uh, Everybody has to be on high alert in terms of, you know, making sure that there's, you know, safety measures taken in place. Another issue we face is that a lot of our surgical wards ended up being converted into COVID wards. Um, you know, I can tell you at the Royal Alexandra that happened. We had a unit where we had a dedicated post-surgical unit that was fully converted to a COVID unit, which meant that suddenly all our patients are dispersed all over the hospital and we have to kind of struggle with other services to try to get a bed for our patients. So, you know, there's a lot of challenges. I mean, you know, when people get, get sick and they need intensive care or they need, you know, stuff that needs to get done in hospital, you have to kind of now start balancing with that. You know, how do you accommodate those needs when there's a lot of people on a ventilator on, you know, with COVID. Yeah. So there's, you know, there's, there's a lot of stress around that. And I think that's a lot of the contributing factor to why a lot of people are feeling the burnout now. Yeah. And then, um, you know, a part of it, uh, and I think you mentioned this previously as well, is just the fact that you have these patients who are, you know, needing urgent, you know, cancer surgeries or needing urgent uh, uh, kidney transplants, but they're also, you know, the population that's kind of higher risk of catching COVID. Yeah. And yeah, so you have to be much more diligent in regards to your procedures. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, and then, so did, did our, like say at the Royal Alex, for example, did, did we come close in regards to like being completely full? I mean, you know, I don't know the exact numbers of beds because that information always was dynamic. It changed almost every day. I can tell you that every, there wouldn't be a day, you know, over the past month where we wouldn't get it. There'll be tons of emails coming in, you know, there's an outbreak on this unit. There's an outbreak on that unit. In terms of physical bed space, I think, you know, we are at a point where we're able to make accommodations. So people are able to make beds. Um, but what it does is it puts significant strain on nurses, for example. So for, you know, let's say nurses now, single nurse now has to look after more than double of their normal capacity. I mean, I don't think there was a, I mean, at one point we had the most COVID cases at Royal Alec in Edmonton. I don't think we ran into a, you know, we never run into a position where we, for example, do a procedure or, or, or do a, you know, some sort of a medical intervention and there's no beds 
physically in a hospital, there's always some sort of a shuffling game that goes on to find physical beds. But, you know, when you, on paper, yeah, the hospitals were full. They were full capacity. I, I would say they were running over capacity. Um, and, you know, that was just a reality of kind of trying to balance that, you know, and, and a lot of units, for example, for example, day surgery wards are being converted to irregular floor wards. Um, you know, recovery rooms are being converted to intensive care units. So a lot of physical space was being made and a lot of nurses were being strained to cover those extra beds. So basically the system is doing everything it can to kind yeah. of uh, maximize its space and go above and beyond. Yeah. What about uh, ventilators? Is that been okay so far or? Yeah, I think the intensive care, you know, physicians are kind of, they were talking about that, you know, at one point, I know there was a communication that came out about even, you know, lack of oxygen at some hospitals in Calgary, but I know, you know, part of that was rumors, but on the other hand, you know, I think, you know, one thing that we do a good job of, I think, in a Canadian healthcare system is we know how to triage care properly. So, you know, the intensive care units are well equipped and, and, and they're, they're really well uh, experienced in, in knowing who can come out of intensive care and who needs to be accommodated. So I think, you know, overall people are doing an extremely good job of trying to balance the minimal number of ventilators or trying to make more ventilators happen when they need to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And then did you have any questions out there so far or? <clears throat> I do have a couple of questions, but uh, one of them is very basic and the other um, I think is out of his scope. Well, you can ask them anyways, and we can try our best to answer. Okay. Um, so the first question I had was with regards to uh, variants. Like, um, uh, I guess I don't know how, how difficult it is to um, develop a vaccine, how long that process takes once you already have a vaccine ready for the initial like coronavirus. Um, but yeah, I think that's out of your, I'm assuming that's out of your scope, though, that question. Yeah, I mean. But if you, if you kind of look at the basics, I mean, we deal with the variant of the flu every year, right? That's why every year we have a new vaccine coming out. Mm -hmm. I don't think the COVID having variants is any different than that. I think it's the same okay. that, you know, with influenza is the same thing. There's a team coming out of the, you know, the center of disease control that surveils flu strains every year. And they come up with, you know, kind of genomic sequencing of, you know, what strains are more prevalent in a given flu season. And, and, and you know, I think, scientists and people have experience with the concept of viral variants because the concept of coming up with a you know even when h1n1 was around you know people were aware of it they were able to add it on to the flu vaccine that people were made available during the fall so you know the concept that these variants are happening is i don't think foreign to the medical community i think what i foresee happening with the covid situation is going to be the same thing there's going to be just like there's a team of people looking at what kind of mutations are happening with a flu vaccine, there's gonna be a team of people who are gonna be surveilling what are the new mutations happening with the COVID. Mm -hmm. And they're gonna to try to tailor their vaccination based on the kind of mutational variants. You know, okay. the other thing is these companies are not really disclosing a lot into, you know, <laughs> they're saying that the vaccines, for example, protect against the variants, but I don't really know what that means just based on reading some of the peer reviewed publications. I mean, I think more of that data will start to come out um, because a lot of the trials in COVID have been open mid last year. So a lot of this is very fresh. We don't know how long the vaccine is gonna be effective for. 
We don't know if the vaccine is going to have to be modified in terms of its content, you know, when it becomes available in the fall to the public. So, you know, I think we have to wait a little bit more until the scientific community has a little bit more information. Yeah, and I think um, <clears throat> when a provider of the vaccine says their vaccine already covers for the variant, it sounds, as an outsider, it sounds suspicious to me because how could you know your vaccine covers the variant if you didn't know what was in the variant prior to making the vaccine in the first place? Yeah, and I mean, part of that could be some information that we don't have access to, right? I mean, okay. they, yeah. they, you know, when they made the vaccine, you know, it is a different type of vaccine in a sense. I mean, we're, we, it's an mRNA-based vaccine. So, so you know, I, I don't know if the sequence that they came up with for the particular vaccine is broad mm -hmm. enough to cover for all the protein combinations that are present in COVID. We, we just don't have that information. And, and I'm not sure if all the companies are fully transparent. Mm -hmm. okay. um, yeah, it makes sense. But, uh, yeah, to speak on that a little bit, I mean, when the companies are speaking to that, uh, they they think it will cover it because the main protein that they're going after is a spike protein. Right. And mm -hmm. the spike protein is common with the variant as well as, you know, COVID-19. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, other question I had is a, is a basic one, but I guess uh, I'm not too familiar with the... Uh, like the medical lingo, uh, such as like triage. Um, so I Google it. <laughs> um, so it's just like assignment, assignment of degrees of urgency to wounds and illness. Is that right? Yeah. So triaging basically means, you know, how do we allocate people to the care that they need uh, when they come into hospital or, or how, how, how do we kind of send them where they need to be or, or provide them with what they need? That's, that's the way I look at, you know, triaging. Okay, makes sense. All right, cool. Thank you. Yep. And then, uh, so you've already gotten your uh, first uh, vaccine dose. Well, which one was it? The Pfizer or? Yeah, I got the Pfizer vaccine uh, January fifteenth. Okay. Okay. And then, how uh, any side effects from it or anything like that? No, I mean, you know, if I I got the shot uh, the next couple of hours after. You know, I felt a little tired. I took some Advil and to be honest, by the end of that day of getting the vaccine, I felt completely fine. And then okay. the days following that, I had no uh, no other symptoms. You know, one thing I'll mention was that there's a lot of the times, you know, people come up to me sometimes, I, you know, for example, I got a, when I was, when I was uh, out getting groceries last week, I, I, somebody asked me, um, you know, well, when I get a vaccine, I usually get sick and I avoid the flu vaccine because I get sick from it. My general opinion is that if you're getting sick, <laughs> like if you're getting fevers, chills, you know, body aches after a vaccine, in my mind, looking at this is a good thing. You're mounting an immune response. So yeah, it means it's actually working. Your immune system is working. It's mounting a response, which is very important because it's going to create cells that are going to have memory so that when you come in contact with, you know, that viral strain, again, it'll be able to mount the immune response. So, you know, and within the circle of my colleagues who have received the vaccine, everybody so far that I've spoken to have tolerated the first dose well. Um, I haven't come across anybody within the circle that I know that had much complaints. Okay. And then I just wanted to ask a question for my friend Harnake, who's just in chat there. So he was specifically wondering about, like, I know there's not a lot of data on kids in terms of the vaccination. So he has a four-year-old and then he also has, you know, he's um, 
his significant other also is um, immunocompromised. So, like, obviously, we're not at the stage yet where we can say what uh, vaccine we can give kids. But what kind of strategy should, like, a family like that kind of, um, you know, once the vaccine becomes available to them, what kind of strategy do you think you'd recommend for someone like a family like that? Yeah, so I guess the first thing is, so so patients who are, uh, you know, pediatric population and the, and the people who have an immune system that doesn't work well, I believe based on my last update of, of seeing one of the publications, they are including those patients in the active trials. And I think we're going to have some answers to those questions once the trials are fully complete. Because within the general group of people that they enrolled, there are children and there are people, you know, with with a poor functioning immune system, they're including in, in, the, in the analysis. I don't think the data is robust enough for us to be able to make any conclusions or recommendations yet. But I think the answer to whether my kids are going to be able to get the vaccine or whether somebody who has a poorly functioning immune system are going to be able to get the vaccine, we're going to know the answers to that as the trials kind of come to some sort of a preliminary conclusion. Uh, I mean, the second thing is, you know, I would take the same precautions as I would, you know, if just same as around the time of a flu, you know, flu, flu every year, wash hands, um, you know, make sure that you wash your hands when you're coming from, you know, the outside into a home. Um, you know, if, if uh, you don't have to leave the household or get exposed, then, then try not to. And just general basic measures of, you know, good hygiene and making sure that kids and people with poorly functioning immune system are well protected. So minimize yeah. contact with others. And, you know, it, 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 it sounds, it's basically the same basic measures as we would do every year. If somebody, for example, in the household has flu or is at risk of getting flu. Yeah. Yeah. And then just kind of doing a little bit of uh, basic reading on it, uh, like um, with, with kids and pediatrics, hopefully by fall, we will have, you know, when it rolls out to the general public, We'll have a better idea of it, but generally, for kids, they're getting a smaller doses just because they they seem to form a stronger immunal response to uh, vaccines and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Um, the other thing, did you have any questions, honey? Yeah, but I don't know if I should ask it. Uh, just ask. Uh, my concern is that like there's so much information and misinformation in the media and online and reading and in Facebook groups, Twitter, Reddit, and people are just so bombarded with this. And so my question is like, how do you deal with people who are not taking this COVID thing seriously? Because you work on the front line, you see like, no, this is real, you know, follow the protocols set out. Like, how, what do you say to that? Because I know people are getting impatient. They want to go back to normal. But it's like every time the government loosens up restrictions as well, that, that's the second part of it it seems like the COVID cases go back up. So like, how do you sort of manage all this chaos, right? Like, I, I can't imagine how overwhelming that must be for you who's a frontline. And you see that this is like real, this is causing so much strain and, you know, people are dying, right? Yeah, 100%. Uh, I think I agree with you, you know, Doreen, I think a lot of people in the public are a little bit misinformed about, you know, I come across people who think this whole COVID is a hoax. Um, you know, people don't think this is a real thing. Others always quote the numbers that this is less lethal than a flu. I mean, 
this has already killed more people in a, than, than a couple flu seasons combined. And, you know, if you go into the hospitals, that's where you really see the full impact of it. You know, you don't have to be a believer in it, but it, it, it overwhelmed our healthcare system. It affected pretty much every level of help being able to provide healthcare, you know, and Wasif could probably say the same thing about seeing people, you know, in pharmacy. I mean, it's, it, it is, a, it's, it's people, I think for the most part, you know, I, at least the people that I have come across in a hospital setting, you know, they see all the chaos going around that's happening around them and they, and they understand that this is serious, but there's definitely people out in the community who, you know, they don't see the same things that, you know, perhaps I or my colleagues see and, and they try to take this lightly, but, you know, you know, what, what do I say to them? I think the best thing you can do is try to educate people just like, you know, you would when they come into you with high blood pressure or any other medical disease. I mean, this is a serious problem. Um, it's not only affecting you, but it's affecting people around. So if you choose to break rules and you become contagious and you make other people sick, you know, you are also putting everybody around you at risk because you're overwhelming the healthcare system. So, you know, the best thing you can do is you, you know, you can't always win with people, but the best thing you can do is try to educate, you know. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's a it's a conversation, right? Yeah. So yeah, you don't want to, you know. We, you know, I want to be there changing people's minds, right? But you can't present the information in such a way that they get defensive. It's just a conversation and, and hopefully that will kind of help to also have them an open, have them have more of an open mind to receive the information. Like one of the things that I want is for people to take it seriously, the government to take it seriously. I understand the economy is tanking. I understand not only healthcare, but everyone else is affected by it, right? Of course. And people's lives want to go back to normal but i feel like if we can just continue just to hang in there and just be like hey guys like this is real we need to just you know hang in there a little bit longer and then hopefully we can go back to normal i mean i saw in a report of new zealand and australia now how they've managed to curb it and how they've handled it pretty well like why aren't we in that same boat and that's something that i can't understand either right like i know it's hard believe me i mean some days i just like i go like, I'm just like, I need to get out of the house. Like, I'm, I can't, like, it's, I'm suffocating. People are not meant to be isolated. They need to go out and socialize. But it's just, it just feels like the longer people don't take this seriously, the longer we're going to be in the cycle. I think that's where the frustration is, right? Yeah. 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 And then uh, uh, I had a, oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead, yeah. Well, I guess what I'm trying, what I always try to tell people, I mean, when I come across, you know, people that don't want to get the vaccine or anything, or do you think this whole thing is a hoax? I mean, I try to kind of maybe tell them a little bit about the reality. I mean, being sick from COVID, if you're very sick from this disease, it's a very miserable process. I mean, you're basically going to, you know, if you get sick and you're requiring care admission, you are basically, you know, potentially going to die in isolation. Nobody can come and visit you. You are basically, you know, in a hospital, requiring a lot of resources and it's a very very unpredictable disease i mean we've seen young people getting sick from it we saw we see older people getting sick from it i don't think there's a way i mean one of the reasons why i think this is you know very frustrating is because we can't we don't really understand or can predict who's going to get really sick from covid and who isn't yeah like i've, I've had patients who are like 80 or 90 who showed no symptoms and they were very high risk versus Patients who were like in their twenties had no no comorbidities, but got very sick. Yeah. And then, like you said, where they get sick and 
they're there by themselves and that's 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 the worst thing to you know be you know you're you know so much in need but you can't have any of that that support that you normally have yeah, yeah. and the alternative is i mean if you think about it i mean we this started to become a problem you know in the fall of 2019 if you think about the amount of effort that went into you know multiple companies coming up with vaccines i mean we've basically have overcome quite a bit in a short amount of time i mean you know i know there's a lot of people that are fed up with the lockdown fed up with not you know things not going back to normal but if you think about how much we have accomplished you know in terms of trying to mitigate some of the challenges in the healthcare system and then then you know companies coming up with vaccines i mean this is in my opinion impressive in a way that we're able to come up with some sort of a multiple options of vaccine in such a short period of time um so you know when people are getting impatient about the status quo right now i would say you know the alternative is you can have a horrible complication or suffer a horrible course of the disease or you can just be a little bit more patient and wait until life gradually starts returning back to normal and with now you know more companies being engaged in production of vaccines and people trying to figure out the distribution problem i don't i don't think we're going to have to wait forever i mean there's going to be a some point where there is, there is light at the yeah. end of the tunnel yeah yeah absolutely uh just a question from uh, someone on facebook and um lala was just asking like in terms of prescribing have you i don't know if you deal with this or not but have you seen like a increase in antidepressant or anti-anxiety medications being needed during covid yeah i mean i don't specifically i mean i don't see people in the primary care setting but yeah. speak to my family physician colleagues i can say that yeah mental health has definitely you know a huge impact i mean covid has a huge impact on the mental health i don't i don't know if you know this translates to more antidepressants or or some sedatives being prescribed but i can say that within a medical community there's a high level of anxiety and 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 high level of burnout and depression and and there's a significant impact on mental health i there's no doubt in my mind and i and i suspect primary care physicians are not only tasked with seeing people that you know have chronic health issues that need to be you know counseled about covid but they're 100% i'm 100% confident based on the people that i've spoken to that they are seeing more mental health issues and then uh one of my friends dacton was also asking since you already like say you get the second vaccination after that you uh because we don't know whether the vaccine prevents transmission or not you you yourself are going to have to continue with you know the social distancing the physical distancing measures that we still have in place right yeah and i think it's because the vaccine is being is only being rolled out to a specific group of people right now yeah so that is get that herd immunity right yeah and i mean i it isn't to say that if i get vaccinated i can't harbor the virus in me and i you know if i see multiple patients who don't have who are not protected i may because of the vaccine i may be protected but i may be giving that virus to somebody else if i don't take measures so absolutely you get the vaccine and i think until everybody until the vaccine is made available to the public you still have to have physical distancing mask wearing and and hand washing and then i know with you being on the front lines um what what kind of precautions do you have to take because i know you kind of you come home to like a young family and yeah yeah 
So, I mean, for example, if I, a couple of settings, I guess one is, you know, when we get called to see patients in the emergency department as a consultation, um, we as a group, you know, always everybody is presumed positive unless proven otherwise. So you take all the precautions. So always make sure that you, we're wearing an N95 eye protection um, and personal protective equipment when we're seeing new consultations in the emergency department. And, um, you know, if somebody has any signs that uh, are concerning for potential COVID, fevers, chills, upper respiratory tract type symptoms, uh, we, you know, we swab pretty much everybody just to make sure that when we're placing them on the ward after admission, we know the status of their, um, you know, COVID. Uh, when we're in the operating theater, uh, the anesthetist uh, always dismisses the surgical team during intubation. Uh, because that's the highest risk of having aerosolized particles, you know, in the operating theater. So we have measures where before the operation, when the anesthetist intubates a patient, we leave the operating theater, we wait a certain amount of time and we go back in order to, you know, resume or, or start the operation. Um, you know, and basically anytime we're seeing patients on the floor, um, we always are wearing full protective equipment. I, you know, eye protection, N95 face protection, gloves. Um, before I come home, um, I always make sure that I have, you know, I have a fresh pair of clothes uh, that I change to. Uh, you know, you always, I always disinfect my phone, um, my badge, my pens, anything that I have to bring back with me. I wipe it down with sterile wipes. And uh, I do the same thing with my car just to, you know, prevent, because I use my car to travel around the city on call to see consultations at different hospitals. So I always make sure that my car is wiped on the inside, that all my equipment, my phone, and everything that I always touch is always wiped down multiple times. Okay, well, I, yeah, on the behalf of, you know, everyone here, just wanted to say, you know, thank you so much. Say, you know, thanks for joining us for on the podcast and thanks for everything that you're doing there on the front lines. Or, you know, we really appreciate everything that you're doing, Jan. Thanks, Wasif, and thanks for, you know, doing this. I think it's important to raise public awareness. Yeah, for sure. Hopefully, you know, do our best to kind of get the word out, for sure. Anyways, uh, thanks again, and yeah, yeah, enjoy the rest of your weekend. Yeah, you guys too. Take care. Yeah, take care. Bye. Thanks again for listening to the Eye Care Podcast. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing. If you have any questions about the podcast or about your health, you're always welcome to text me at 780-705-8871. Again, I'm from iCare Pharmacy, where we provide free delivery all throughout Edmonton, Sheriff Park, St. Albert, and Beaumont. Take care and stay safe.